Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Today I am with Dr. Jared Marcucci. The second time Dr. Marcucci's been on the show. He is the chair of the emergency department at Community First Medical Center. Dr. Marcucci, thanks for being on the show. Hey, uh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's uh, good to be back. <laughs> hey, so uh, last time we talked about your career into medicine, uh, what it's like to be an emergency department uh, physician, and now we get to talk to you uh, during a very interesting time, and I'm sure you're very busy as of lately with this COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, it is. It's it's a crazy, it certainly is a crazy time as, um, for all of us, and particularly to be in emergency medicine. I think um, the entire like view or people's opinions or um, the way we look at emergency medicine is definitely kind of in the uh, spotlight, and it's uh, certainly been a demanding time, but it's uh, at the same time, we've had a lot of support and it's been good. So what is your day-to-day uh, activity been like in the last week months what's it been like well you know a lot of it has been um the medical community in general is a tight-knit group but in addition to that even the, the general specialties um so like the emergency medicine doc so we've all been through online groups um you know, and some of it's even made it into some of the media with um, the Facebook group that the emergency medicine doctors were all on. And um, so we've all been talking about this for quite a while and kind of trying to figure out how we're going to approach it. And then as it in the last month or so, as this, things have really picked up, we, it's kind of we were watching China, then we were watching Italy and trying to and actually talking to those doctors. And then as it came here, we've been really in co- um, conversation with New York and kind of learning from the, what they've done and then seeing what worked and what didn't work. Um, but the day to day, it's really kind of interesting because, you know, um, medicine in general uh, during times of war. Mm-hmm. really huge advances. Um, and so every bit major conflict we've had, uh, medical technology or medical um, kind of discovery, it really makes leaps and bounds. And there's a lot of reasons why that is, but some of, and a lot of people have discussed things they think why that is. But um, the interesting part is, is it really feels like wartime medicine. Obviously, um, I never served in any of the wars or, or, or had any experience in that. But from the stories I've heard and from the things that are going on, um, it really feels like that. And what I mean like that by that is every day is very different and we're making these decisions and um, a lot of times without a lot of evidence and having to just, you know, it's a, a quick decision and, it, and there's, you have really maybe one guy's told you about it or you've heard this somewhere and you've read it and it's desperate times bring desperate measures. So we're kind of doing um, learning as we go with a lot of this. That's crazy to think about. So to, and that's amazing that you're doing all this amidst these times. Uh, so if I remember correct, you're in Chicago and the north north side of, of Chicago. Where exactly are you in Chicago again? Yeah, we're on the um, north side of Chicago. It's um, Addison and Central, which is called Portage Park. But it's right. Um, it's kind of north of Wrigleyville or where, you know, the Cubs play. Um, so it's that, that area, uh, it's an urban downtown, you know, inner city area. Um, the mixed population of, uh, all kinds of different, um, cultural and populations and very busy. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so right now then what, 
with patients coming in, what is it like for the average patient? What are you seeing with most patients that are coming in to the hospital for COVID-19? Yeah. So initially when this kind of first started, um, we were really, which is a change of paradigm for emergency medicine. So we see everyone regardless of how they pay or whatever. And so when we train, that is in the forefront of us. So we never even ask about insurance or know about it. We just treat everyone. Well, we started getting recommendations from CDC and, um, you know, all the different or, uh, organizations and agencies telling us, listen, we need to start people who aren't sick, people who aren't really sick need to start being um, redirected back home, huh. which was neat for us. So, um, and then of course, when we started doing the lockdown, but so patients are coming and they're, you know, walking in sometimes and they're not really that sick. They feel sick but they have a cold symptoms, URI symptoms, they're coughing. And they're of course worried about COVID um, and walk in the room. And I explained to them, I say, Hey, this is a very interesting time. We're not, we're not refusing to see you, but if you're well enough to be up and walking around and you're not in extremis, we're asking for your own safety and your family's safety. It's better for you to return home. Interesting. Um, and we will do it. You know, we will examine them, check them, make sure there's no life or limb, uh, kind of emergency situation, but if they're not hypoxic, meaning their oxygen is not low, we send those home. And before we weren't doing that, those were, um, you know, we would work those up and maybe eventually they go home, but we're very more quicker to kind of redirect, um, which is new. So, the, but the average patient now that's coming in because this has been going on for a while is usually pretty sick. So the volume in general is down. You know, we see mm -hmm. 20 patients a day, maybe, um, on a busy days where now we're seeing maybe half that, um, oh, or wow. 80, 80 to, you know, that, but the patients who are coming in are very, very, very sick. Hmm. And so, and then the hospitals are filling up and there's no space for them. So although the volume is down, you have to remember a lot of the volume of emergency medicine is, is not true emergencies. Mm -hmm. And so those, those people who are coming aren't coming, they've gotten the message. And so that's good that they're not but we're, what we are getting is high acuity. Wow. That's ah, so crazy to think about. So if we're, so you have 60 to 80 patients, a little less than usual, but really sick patients. What are we seeing in these patients? Yeah, it's interesting because um, the way that this sort of disease sort of breaks down is, you know, largely most people who get this are going to have mild minimal symptoms and some even no symptoms worth seeing, but it's going to feel like a cold, um, a cough. It's a dry cough, um, which by the way, runny nose is not part of this. Um, but as we go, we're learning more about it, but the most majority of the people aren't going to even be all that sick, mm -hmm. but there's going to be a population of people, mostly older elderly, but also I've seen quite a few young ones as well who um, will come in and they're, they describe it as they just feel like they can't breathe. They're short of breath. And they wake up in the night and they're like gasping for air. Wow. And this, and that will linger with them for a little while. You do a chest X-ray or a CT of their chest and it looks horrible. There's like the tissue, there's no tissue there. There's no um, like surviving lung tissue and they're just look really bad. And um, then they will go bad really quick. So normally when I have a sick patient who has respiratory issues, they, they might gradually decline. Okay. What I've noticed with these patients is when they decline, it's like, you know, two hours and all of a sudden they're not breathing at all. Um, or really, really hanging on by a thread. So it's, it's a very sick population when they get sick. 
why why is that do you think that it declines so much so quickly i think what's happening is in a certain group of these patients um their physiology and their lung capacity is just getting pushed over so they're able to compensate and they're able to compensate and then at it's very quick. They quickly tumble over. Whereas in a lot of other illnesses, there's more reserve, respiratory reserve. I think this, they have a respiratory reserve, but when it goes, there's not a lot of time in between. Um, and that, you know, we see that in the flu as well. People with influenza, when they, they'll be okay and okay, but when they go bad, they go bad quick. But hmm. this disease, they're going bad even quicker than the flu when it goes bad. Wow. That's, that's really I don't think interesting is the right word, but that's just crazy to hear. Um, so if we're if we're talking about uh, patients with can't start, uh, struggle to breathe, start going downhill quickly, uh, basically on the science side of things, what I've been reading is that it has to do with the, the alveoli um, and that it infects the type 2 pneumocytes and then their alveoli, alveoli fill with pus and then they're not able to exchange oxygen um, being able to get oxygen. Is that correct? Is that? Yeah, no, that's, that's a very good, um, a breakdown of it. Yeah. It's essentially your lungs, the way they work is, you know, you bring in the oxygen, the blood that goes by there takes that oxygen out and then travels around the body. And, um, there's a couple different ways you can be deprived of oxygen. And in like with this disease, what's happening is, is the space or the amount of real estate you have to transfer oxygen to the blood from your lungs is being blocked by filling up with these cytokines and the mm-hmm. uh, inflammation fluid essentially in the lungs. And then it's making that it's like, it's like, you know, if you have an air filter um, to a room and you go and it's not working very well and you pull it off and there's a whole bunch of lint that's blocking it. Yeah. It's kind of the same kind of thing. It just gets filled up and then they, they're not oxygenating well, which we found with this is what, after we're intubating patients, we're doing a new thing called prone positioning. Okay. So normally when you intubate someone, you know, it's putting a tube into their uh, trachea, into their um, breathing so you can oxygenate for them. Mm-hmm. The ventilator pushes um, oxygen into them. Um, but what we, and they're usually in that situation, they're on their back. They lay on their back and that's how we have them set up. We have found from, you know, all the different colleagues and sharing information that these patients actually do much better if they're on their stomachs. So, um, and that's something to do with the physiology and the way that these, the fluid is in in the lungs that it's repositioning it and creating more uh, space to exchange oxygen. So we've even gone as far as some of these patients before we intubate them, we're trying a period of laying them on their, um, you know, prone in a prone position. So they're laying on their stomach. um, And I've seen some patients improve and avoid being intubated just by doing that. Wow, interesting. Yeah, and along those lines, how are you treating most of these patients? Are you prescribing certain medications at this point? Uh, how often are you putting them on ventilators? How often do you have to intubate them? How are you treating most well, people? I'll give you um, maybe a, a hypothetical, we'll say, case, and no identifying um, patient information, but I had a, um, some of the details are changed to protect the innocent, but yeah. I had a patient, um, a young patient who came in, uh, who only past medical history was asthma. And, um, he came in and this was a while back and he said, you know, I felt, I felt like I had a fever and, um, I'm a little bit short of breath. So I examined him and he wasn't hypoxic, meaning he wasn't, his oxygen saturations were in the high nineties. 
Um, he was actually seen by a colleague a couple days earlier mm-hmm. uh, for URI and asthma and appropriately sent home at that time. And this was back when we couldn't get the tests. There's not enough tests. So we were, you know, only reserving the tests for the sickest patients. So he, he went home, came back. I saw him and I say, I do a chest x-ray at this point, And mm-hmm. I see, okay, you have pneumonia. He had infiltrates pneumonia in one side of his lung, but he wasn't hypoxic. So I said to him, I said, listen, um, he refused any testing at this point because it was going to take so long to get the test. I said, look, you can go home, but you need to assume you have COVID-19 um, and isolate yourself, stay away from your family. And I started him on antibiotics. Okay. And I get breathing medications. Two days later, he comes back as I instructed him to, if he gets worse, come back with his father. And we ended up intubating both of them, oh, actually. Wow father and um, the son. And uh, the good news is they're both doing better now. Um, the son's extubated, oh, but um, it's kind of driven. The treatment is very much driven by the acuity of what's going on. So hmm. as you know, viruses, there's not really an antibiotic. There's um, your general treatment of viruses in general is going to be symptomatic relief. So we might give a breathing treatment or you might um, give you know, some, have them stay uh, hydrated and treat fever um, and some of the symptoms, they pain, whatever they have, but there's not like uh, with a bacterial pneumonia, when you can treat with an antibiotic, there's not really a good um, medication for it. So um, we do have some with, with the influenza, um, but your general cold is kind of, you know, treat the symptoms and, and that's what you do. Um, in, in this case, when they're coming in, um, unlike the flu, we don't have an anti uh, viral medication that's been approved, but uh-huh. uh, there has been some things we're trying, but generally when they come in, if they're mild symptoms, not that bad, and they're not hypoxic, we send them home. Um, now we have more tests. We may test them and then say, you need to isolate yourself. Hmm. But if symptoms get worse, you need to come in. Um, if you're short of breath and really an extremist, you need to come in. And then some of them are coming back and they can't breathe. Yeah, and the weird down. part about it is when you look at their oxygenation. So I'll give you an example, uh, normal, healthy lungs, you're going to be saturating a hundred percent on room air. Hmm. Okay. So yeah. you or myself, if we hooked up to a thing that measured it, we'd be close to a hundred percent smokers. Um, they actually will saturate at 95, 93%. When someone starts to get below 90, they are really um, struggling. So if someone's below 90 and they're staying below 90, despite giving oxygen in a normal situation, you're looking to intubate them mm-hmm. because they're a respiratory distress failure. These patients, we're seeing an odd thing. We're seeing a thing where they're, we call it happy hypoxia. Okay. They're sitting at 75%, 79% and texting on their phone. Um, if you ask them, are you short of breath? They would say yes. And their lungs sound horrible, but they're not an extremist. Huh. They're just chilling there at 75 well, for a while. And then you come back and, you know, after a short period of time, they're no longer happy hypoxia. Then they're going towards respiratory failure, distress, and then require intubation. And that's when we, um, when we're intubating. Hmm. Initially, the science and the thoughts were intubate early. So someone comes in, they look like a bad COVID case. They look like they're going to go bad, intubate them early. What we're finding though now, this is changing almost daily, is that someone is intubated, their mortality rate goes way up. So you, wow. you want to, huh. yeah, you can avoid intubating a patient. Like you get them better in other ways, 
their mortality rate is going to be lower. But wow. if you wait too long and you don't intubate them, then you miss a chance and their mortality is up. So it's this fine balance of kind of learning, you know, where the patient's at and making quick decisions. Their life and death and um, making the right decision one way or the other will save, will hopefully save them. Holy cow. That's wild. Yeah, there. Uh, I heard a, a doctor say once the nature of a pandemic is to make you feel stupid because we're le- we're learning so much stuff every day and how you had brought up how we advance medicine at these times. It's just things are changing every day. So that's interesting to hear that you've had that firsthand with intubating. Um, I am curious what what the average time frame is for people's emer- ED stays. Uh, how often you're sending them up to the ICU, if you're sending them to other parts of the hospital, what, what is that looking like? Well, it's interesting because right now, and I think this is as the pandemic has been picking up, it kind of um, naturally evolves into this situation. Um, but what's going on now is really that, at least in Illinois, they've come out and they said, okay, whatever the doctor calls the bed, it's now that bed. So if I say this patient's an ICU bed, it now it could be in a hallway. It is now an ICU bed. Oh, wow. So they changed the regulations on that because of the dynamic situation. So what's happening is, is the patients are coming in, the ones who don't need to be there, who aren't sick enough, we are quickly getting them out of there so they don't get COVID while they're there mm-hmm. and telling, instructing them to go home, self-isolate, come back if they're worse. The other patients who are sick, we're, we're admitting fairly quickly if they need it, um, if they're going to be intubated, they need an ICU bed. But what's happening is because the hospital's filling up with almost you know, largely all COVID patients, um, we're really getting into a situation where we're having to get creative and like, we'll have 20 admitted patients who are in the emergency department for longer periods of time. So I've had patients who we can't get a bed for, for two days. And so we continue to manage them in the emergency department until a bed becomes available. Um, but the average is, you know, they're in there longer than normal because of the bedding situation. Wow. Yeah. That's, uh, that's, it's, it's crazy to fathom everything that's going on. You being on the front lines is, is amazing. Uh, so we're very grateful for that. Um, with, as we think about, you had brought up, you know, some people have just mild symptoms. I've done research on a lot of people being asymptomatic, but those certain people that get sick, get really sick. What are you seeing in your patient population? From my research specifically, I've seen that it's mostly, older people and people with underlying health conditions. Is that what you have been seeing as well with your po- patient populations? And, and, or, yeah, or not? I, I think that, that general is the general trend. And I think like with everything, you have some outliers, but yeah, generally the patients who are getting sick and are really sick and ultimately requiring ventilators or um, ultimately expire even are generally um, older, older than 60, but, even older than 70 is really where you start seeing um, a higher percentage. And then they have underlying um, comorbidities. So we know diabetes, we know obesity. We also know any respiratory issues. So it's like smokers who have COPD. Mm. Um, those, that's a bad mix. So if you have the age and then those comorbidities, but like I said, I've had um, a 19 year old um, and uh, in their twenties um, come in in cardiac arrest from home. Hmm. Um, related to COVID and respiratory stress. But the numbers and what I'm seeing match those numbers is mostly hmm. um, elderly with uh, complicated past medical history um, that we're seeing who get really sick. Um, and 
which is part of the reason for the lockdown is not so much really to prevent the younger people from getting sick. It's from having our grandparents catch that illness. And then they're the ones who ultimately suffer um, from it. But I, I will tell you too, even though that's the majority, I have seen every age gamut. I mean, um, right now we have a couple of our own colleagues, physicians who are um, on ventilators, uh, uh, who've, who've contracted the illness in the hospital. And um, in, in this case, both of them are older, uh, but yeah, they're, uh, pretty sick. Yeah, that was that leads right into what I was going to ask next is is the healthcare workers, you and all your colleagues. What has that been like for you with taking precautions and and how many of your colleagues have gotten sick? Or have there been more than just those two uh, colleagues? Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting because from the beginning, um, we were really concerned, and actually before even the government and everybody started taking actions, I kind of suspected that the COVID was already here and around us and we were already spreading it. Um, but yeah, we are taking all the precautions, but the, the crazy part is, is it changes. So we have all the PPE equipment and there have been shortages, but there's also been um, perceived shortages because we have to be very um, like cautious and guarded because if you just open up the closet, pretty soon all the N95s are gone and we have to make it last. Mm-hmm. So we're pretty stringent with how we distribute it. But um what happens is, is we, from the beginning, we were very careful and cautious and, and using the right equipment. But I think even before we started paying attention to that, it probably was already being exposed to us. So um, we follow all the precautions, but as you get busier, what happens is, is usually how you get it is someone will um, touch, you know, uh, touch something or be in the room with a patient who may have a COVID and the respiratory uh, airborne you know, particles will get onto their hands or somewhere and then they touch their face. And so when they touch their face, it's when they're adjusting their mask or they take their mask off in between and um, they touch their eyes or their face and then end up getting it on a mucous membrane and then contracting it. We have had, um, fortunately in my emergency department, we haven't had um, anybody who's needed required to be intubated or critically ill. We have had some cases of people having to be self quarantined and, you know, sent home to um, be self quarantined and not work mm. uh, because of it. And, and actually myself um, back in February, the beginning of February, even before this all really ramped up, I, you know, I myself had a cold, which I never, my immune system is pretty strong and I never get Lucky. sick actually. <laughs> Lucky, right? And I think I've had so much exposure just over the years that every year I'm always kind of like, well, I'm lucky for now. I never get sick. Well, in February I had a mild, mild cold, um, no fever, uh, not even really significant cough, a little congested. Um, and at the time I, you know, it definitely was not, um, knocking me out from, you know, doing things. But, uh, later when this started, the COVID thing blew up, I thought, man, I wonder maybe we were exposed before we knew it. So just recently we came out with a new testing. There's new testing available to test for antibodies. And I actually was tested recently and I came back IgG positive. Which what means that you mean, built up the antibodies to not have it. COVID-19 again, or to so fight I, against I, COVID-19 again, if it comes back, correct? Right. And it also, yeah, exactly. It's exactly right. And it also means that I was exposed and uh, that cold I had in February likely um, was a mild case of uh, the COVID-19. So I felt very lucky. I felt super lucky when I saw the results because 
my IgM was negative, which means I'm not um, contagious. I'm not passing. I'm not shedding it, but I've been through it and recovered. Um, but a lot of my colleagues have tested negative across the board, um, which, and even for me, I'm still moving forward with the same precautions because we don't fully understand how long the immunity would be for, or, hmm. you know, all those details were. So we're assuming that, Hey, still move forward and protect yourself and my family. Yeah. So what, what have you done to, with your family, protecting your family? How has that been? Well, it's interesting. Um, several of my colleagues have actually moved, um, out of their homes or away from their families. Um, and, some are like myself, I've just taken other precautions, but yeah, you're at a really high risk, particularly in the emergency department where you're seeing all this. And when you intubate patients, we found that is the most uh, dangerous time. You're, you're right in their airway. So you're huh. essentially hot boxing with their lungs. I mean, you're breathing it in even, you know, you have all your equipment on, but that's the likely time you can get um, contaminated and, and get sick. So we worry about bringing it home to the family, obviously. So like I said, some of my colleagues are living alone or in hotels or completely away from their family, which adds another level of difficulty. Yeah. It's a very stressful time and then to not have family. In my case, um, what I do is I, when I show up to the hospital, I change into um, scrubs that I use there during my shift. When I finish a shift, um, I will then go to a locker room, take off those scrubs, completely shower, um, scrub down um, using uh, actually some bleach, which is pretty rough on the skin. And um, then you, then I will completely decontaminate. And then I leave the hospital in a fresh set of clothes. However, when I get home, I kind of repeat the process. I go into my garage, take off those clothes, have another set of clean clothes. Um, and I kind of do, uh, you know, with hand sanitizer and others, another second kind of uh, cleaning and then new clothes there. And then I come in the house and my family stays away from me. I go immediately to a shower, take another shower where I completely get clean. And then only then after I come out from there, I kind of still keep my distance. But, um, you know, I'm trying to be, you know, it's better to be safe and sorry. But, yeah, that's kind of the routine. It adds an hour at each end, you know. That's that's mind boggling. And that I I I just applaud you. And all of you that are going through that and doing that to keep your family safe and to keep others safe, truly amazing. One aspect that I am curious about, because I know you personally, I know your daughter had had a treatment, immunosuppression uh, mm -hmm. form of treatment. I forget, was it six months ago now? Yeah, last July. So she had um, a stem cell transplant, yeah, for um, multiple sclerosis. So her, yeah, that's it. Um, that's a good point, what you're bringing up. And so she came home from college because college was shut down. Um, now I can look back and say I was very fortunate that I probably was exposed and had um, the COVID-19 and prior and resolved prior to her ever getting back here. So that was good. But yeah. I didn't know that till yesterday. Um, she, by the way, my family has tested all negative. So that's good, too. Huh. But um, her situation, though, is very interesting because in talking to her hemo oncologist, uh, when you get a stem cell transplant, that first year, you basically have an immune system of a child, a baby. You huh. actually have to get vaccinated. And she's um, no longer, she is considered to have a health, uh, uh, kind of a 
very naive or young immune system. So it's not perfect, but it's not um, immunocompromised at this point in her uh, kind of treatment. So I, in talking to her hemo oncologist, he kind of said um, a little bit tongue in cheek, but he said, Hey, in reality with COVID, we're seeing these younger patients. In fact, none of the, no, young, not a lot of really younger patients have contracted it and then died from complications from it. They seem sort of protected. Um, he goes in some ways, you know, your daughter has an immune system of a, you know, five or six year old. Um, she may be actually uh, protected, oh, wow. which, which is, could be true, but we, we weren't going to take the risk anyways. But, um, part of the reason of that going through all that process is my options were, okay, I can stay in a hotel, stay in an RV, stay away from my family and do all this, um, which I really needed their support. And for me, uh, I was uh, the risk associated there was, it's, it was a trying thing. It's hard to decide, you know, that which way to go. Um, and I struggle a lot with that. And so, but fortunately thus far, it's been fine. And it looks like for now I'm going to be fine, but I do take all those measures because it's either that or not stay with them, you know? Yeah. Wow. That, and that's, that's really interesting to hear too about your daughter's immune system that it might, it could be better off with having a child immune system or likewise. Yeah. Dr. Marcucci, this has been extraordinary to hear and I am extremely grateful to you and, and all the people out there working on the front lines to help people with this. Uh, are there any, any last things that you wanted to talk about before we wrap this up? Yeah. I, you know, one of the things I tell my doctors and residents, and I appreciate the opportunity to do this. It means a lot. Um, but one of the things I tell the doctors and the resident doctors in there is that in a pandemic, there is no such thing as an emergency. And so what does that mean? Well, we had somebody the other day who's in respiratory distress and they're going down. And we, our natural thing is to rush into that room and take care of them. And we've learned from the Ebola crises and other situations that a lot of the frontline people were taken out because of these uh, rushing into an emergency without taking the time to get in the equipment. Uh-huh. So I'm constantly actually have a person sitting outside the room checking everybody, and which is hard to do when you're seeing the patient is in respiratory distress and we're putting on all our equipment. But we got to make sure we take the time to be safe because the last thing we need is, you know, a doctor going in who didn't put on his stuff right or and gets the disease and dies well they're no longer not only going to not save that patient but many patients to come so it's something to remember that in a pandemic there's no emergency as far as you need to take the time to protect yourself is the lesson in that and to be particularly in the front lines careful with that but i also wanted to say to the people to people that those of you who are staying home and who are i know that's difficult and there's a a lot of the economy and other things have taken a beating but we really are grateful for that and for you are doing that. And if we get through this, it's only going to be from this effort. And so I just want to say thanks. And we feel everybody's love and we feel everybody's support. It's an interesting time. Um, but yeah, no. So from that aspect, we really appreciate it. So thank you. That's truly amazing. Dr. Marcucci, thank you again. And uh, we all wish you the best. Thanks. I appreciate being on the show again. Uh, thank you so much. <laughs> It was wonderful to have you again.